Acts 17. We're continuing in our sermon series this morning on the book of Acts, this account of the New Testament church in its infancy and now in its early growth stages. And we've seen that the gospel has arrived on the continent of Europe. Paul and his companions don't know this. We do because we're looking at modern maps and uh, noting that they're now in uh, Macedonia. And last week in Acts 16, we saw the Philippian church started. A prominent businesswoman named Lydia came to faith in Christ, as did a Roman jailer. And uh, after leaving Philippi, Paul and his team stop in two different cities. That's where the top left uh, star is located. They go to Thessalonica and Berea. And in each city, they share the gospel in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentiles who are God-fearers, and some come to saving faith in Jesus. But in each city, um, soon after, an uh, angry crowd, largely of, of folks from a Jewish background, gather together and drive Paul and his companions out of the city. They don't want them there anymore. The Bereans actually demonstrate one admirable attitude, though. As they're hearing these new ideas about Jesus, they say, hmm, let's look to our Bibles, our scriptures, to see if what he's saying is true. That's what you should be doing in these seats as you listen to any preacher, myself included, share from the pulpit. Is what that person is saying consistent with what is in the scriptures? The, the, to search in a Berean fashion uh, comes from Acts chapter uh, 17 here. Well, for security reasons, Paul and uh, his team split up because of the persecution. And he goes on ahead of them to Athens, where we'll pick up the account in verse 16. Listen carefully. These are God's words. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, give us uh, curiosity, openness, desire to learn like the Bereans, like many here in Athens, to ask questions and trust that you will provide us the answers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question that we'll begin with. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? When Paul shows up in Athens and finds it filled with false worship, with monuments and idols and altars, he begins reasoning in the synagogues, which is his usual practice, with uh, some people from a Jewish background and some people who are Gentiles who are beginning to learn about this God. But what's different here is that he also goes to the agora, to the marketplace. You might be familiar with the phrase uh, agoraphobia, fear of open places, people who can't get out of their homes. They have to uh, stay inside uh, because of this irrational um, phobia they have going on. The agora or marketplace... um, it wasn't just a mall. It, it wasn't uh, a grocery store. Marketplace doesn't do justice to the sense, the wide-ranging sense of what the agora was and represented. It was the public square where everything important happened, where pol- uh, political decisions were crafted, where public communication was provided, where um, financial transactions were executed, where um, the arts were dis- on display and to be enjoyed where culture was made, intellectual ideas were exchanged. Paul went into the heart of the city where all kinds of peoples from all backgrounds, including skeptics and those opposed to the message of Jesus, had gathered. And it's not unlike just about every um, major global city in today's world, filled with all kinds of people from all backgrounds. They said Paul was advocating foreign gods, and this was not a a minor accusation to make. Failure to affirm the gods recognized by the state. That was the main charge leveled against Socrates, the great Greek philosopher in this same city 400 years previously that led to his uh, sentencing and death right there in Athens. Uh, Well, Paul has one advantage. Uh, Contrary to our culture, to most of our friends and neighbors and co-workers, The people of Athens are curious enough to engage him in this dialogue, in this reasoning. Yes, they dispute with him. They push back, but but they also ask questions, starting in verse 19, when they invite him to a meeting of the Areopagus, literally the the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. And this is also known as Paul on Mars Hill because Mars was the Roman god of war, and that was the uh, alternate name given to this place, um, in later times, Areopagus, uh, the hill of Ares. This, the Areopagus was, was much more of a, of a, a collection of um, influential people than a place. Um, this was a council of intellectual and cultural leaders, and it was the perfect audience for Paul to be invited into to speak this message about Jesus. Wouldn't that be a refreshing time and place? to to gather people who are so interested and curious about significant questions. They want to engage in dialogue. 
to ask spiritual and eternal questions of importance and not just talk to each other on mundane things of life, trivialities. Uh, I, I, I might daydream about that as a pastor, but I'd, I'd turn that question around to you and, and ask you this. Are you sitting in a church service on, on a Sunday morning, are you at all interested in engaging in this kind of wrestling with, with deep issues, this dialogue with other people that might have um, thoughts and values and ideas that are different from yours? Do you, do you spend any time thoughtfully processing Scripture with um, other people's ideas about life and their writings? Uh, do, you, do you spend time dialoguing with anyone on the important questions of life and not just pop culture and um, minutiae? Could you act like a Berean, testing what I say by looking to Scripture? Thoughtful wrestling requires reading. It requires um, space in your schedule set aside to um, quiet your heart and mind and engage in this kind of wrestling. It, it requires um, mental space to meditate. And if you don't have that kind of desire and don't make that a priority in your life, I'd boldly say growth in Christ is going to have its limits. You won't grow much. And, and if God brings into your life this um, Athens-like philosophical person who wants to ask deep questions and wonders what you think, you're not going to have that much to offer them if you yourself aren't wrestling. Uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, maybe, maybe the way you express interest in knowing God begins with um, occasionally wondering, is this all there is to life? Why am I here? What's the purpose and meaning underneath the toil and the stresses and the demands that come at me every day? I'd say to you, keep asking those questions just like the best of these Athenians. Athens was full of idols and ideas, full of philosophies and people who wanted to wrestle with them. They were interested in asking these kinds of questions, which ultimately lead to God questions. Questions uh, of purpose um, lead to questions of origin and design. Did anyone make me, the world, for what purpose? And if there is a God, what is he, she, it like? How can I know this God? Who determines right from wrong? What is truth? Those kinds of questions um, cannot be fully answered in the natural realm. They require a, 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 an entry into the supernatural for ultimate answers. My, my guess is that the vast majority of us have never taken a philosophy class, let alone purposefully in adulthood um, opened a, a book on philosophy to, to um, enrich our thinking. Maybe that's not a good thing. Um, but every one of us absorbs philosophical ideas and values from the schools you went to, from your parents, your ethnic national heritage, from the, the friends you hang out with, from pop culture, Hollywood, media, everything um, digital these days. We absorb them, and the question is, do we thoughtfully engage the origin of how we think the way we do? Do, do, we, do we think about our worldview, realize we have one, this grid through which we process all of life, especially the important stuff? If you really want to know God... 
starting with the general questions of meaning and purpose and moving along to more specific questions of who he is as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus, you need to wrestle with ideas like these Athenians. You need to come at questions with a dose of humility and desire to learn from others. But some things you know already. We'll go there secondly. The God you already know. Paul's message to the council starts with this angle. I notice that you have an altar dedicated to an unknown God. The word unknown in the original Greek text is agnosto, from which we get our word agnostic. Someone who says, I don't know God. Uh, I don't know how you can know God. And, and if we broke down that kind of attitude, that, that um, perspective, we, maybe worldview, we, we could um, put it into two different categories of attitudes, agnosticism. One is, you can't know him, so why bother trying? You can't prove that he exists, and so uh, the, the existence of God is irrelevant to me, and let me just live my life. The second category of attitude um, goes more like this. I don't know, but I'd like to. The first one exhibits a bit of a hard heart behind it. Don't know, can't know, don't care. The second one exhibits a bit of humility underneath it. God, I don't know if you exist, but if you're out there, I want to know you. If, if this thing about a relationship with you is true, I, I want to be with you. The first is actually a little bit inconsistency, in, inconsistent because the person is saying, the one thing I know is that you can't know. How do you know that? <laughs> How are you so sure about uncertainty? The second is a lot more consistent agnosticism. I don't know about not knowing. And if you have something to teach me, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. There's a big difference within these two categories of agnosticism. One um, claiming to know more than one should and one humble in one's attitude. Paul doesn't actually set out to prove the existence of God in this sermon. I don't think he does. He's basically saying, you know him already, but you don't realize it. He speaks about the God he does know to people who say they don't know, but everyone who's agnostic lives as if God exists in some part of their lives. To some extent, they live as if God exists. Let me point to one example from the media. Most people would agree objectively that the New York Times is a liberal-leaning um, institution, and um, um, part of that label means it demonstrates a, a new tolerance mindset. John Chung, leading worship, and Mohanna have been leading an uh, adult Sunday school class on evangelism, and last Sunday, they talked about tolerance and several ways of looking at tolerance. The new tolerance mindset says not only should we tolerate um, validate other people's differing opinions out there, but we should also affirm that they're all equally true. And so you have a right to believe what you want, and the new tolerance says, and I need to treat it as equally valid as my way of explaining the world, my values, my, my worldview. That's the new tolerance mindset that's very prevalent in our culture. Um, there's the pluralism element, Lots of ideas out there that we all have to, have to all respect. And there's the relativism part of that that goes on top of it, which is, and who's to say who's right? We're all right. 
We're all valid. Well, um, recently uh, in the New York Times um, op-eds, um, I came across two articles by Nicholas Kristof, and I'll summarize the gist of each of these two articles, okay, in my own words. The U.S., as an ally of Saudi Arabia, cannot remain silent when its so-called friend carries out death sentences in a questionable justice system. The article is about uh, crucif- crucifying uh, someone who was in prison for a political opposition and was about to be beheaded. And um, the second article um, separately said, this is Christoph, we need to abolish modern slavery, which is so often all about sex trafficking. I don't bring those up because I disagree with either of them. He's, he's, um, he writes uh, very often about human rights um, worldwide, and, and these statements are actually good statements. As much as we may agree that a transparent and righteous justice system is good for the citizens of any nation, and as much as, as we'd agree about the horrors of human trafficking, especially when it pertains to children, um, the question is, on what basis are these statements made? In other words, isn't it ironic that the New York Times is asserting that its view represents moral right against the governor of Saudi Arabia and a um, Nepali brothel owner who are wrong? Because part of the um, new tolerance mindset and what goes along with relativism and pluralism is a, is a, is a belief that you know we're all um, products of a random evolutionary process. Nobody, nobody originated us, and therefore there's no overriding purpose. There's no meaning that you can find. If that's really true, the consistent way to apply that is survival of the fittest. The strong um, overtake the weak. The wise crowd out the foolish. The powerful deal with the weak however they see fit. And so on what basis does a a, a New York Times op-ed writer say, this is the right thing to do? And that must stop. Of course, if you have a biblical worldview, you you would agree that God's holiness, which is represented and communicated to us through God's holy law, has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is falsehood, what is light and what is dark. But on what basis do other folks who have a, a very different secular and liberal worldview attack what's going on in Saudi Arabia or in a Nepali brothel? Nicholas Kristof, a secular liberal, most likely an agnostic, maybe even an atheist, he instinctively and boldly asserts these opinions because although he does not know God and doesn't care to, he lives as if God exists. He lives and thinks and acts as if there is an above nature or supernatural standard by which all humans live. We all do this. Because we all know something about God. He has planted something in us, uh, the law on our hearts. This is what Paul says in Romans. Uh, There's a lot he says in Romans, but I'll just point to one thing. He says, what may be known about God is plain to them, humanity, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. We already know enough to be accountable before God. And yet God goes further than that, thirdly, 
as the God who reveals himself to his people. Paul's message to the people of Athens seems to be missing something. He points to God as creator, in charge of all of history. He points out the foolishness of idolatry, the illogic of idolatry, and he points ahead to the day when God will judge the world. But we don't hear him telling his audience how they should respond. How are they to process or synthesize all of this information about God and the world that he has offered them? We, we need to step back and, and realize that any historical account, including uh, biblical historical accounts, are necessarily selective. Um, they, they summarize. They can't be exhaustive. The Apostle John, at the very end of his gospel, says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Today, he might say, there's no hard drive big enough to hold all this. Okay? There, history is selective. And, and, we, and we can apply that to Acts chapter 17 and say, well, it's likely that Luke, the author, didn't give us every single word that Paul delivered at the Areopagus in his uh, speech-slash-sermon. Well, um, how can we fill in the blanks? Here in verse 18, Luke says that the, the Athenians started asking questions because Paul was preaching the good news or gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. Maybe he had started already. We don't know. and We didn't get that detail from the, um, the, the author, Luke. We know that Paul didn't neglect to urge people to place their full trust in Jesus because the, the good news is not good news. It doesn't affect your life. It doesn't transform your life unless it personally applies to you. And we know that Paul got to the heart of the message of salvation because he always does. Because his whole life and ministry were all about pointing people to rescue through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no, we, we, we could say there's no way he admitted that. He, he's the author of, of the gospel. He, he, he exudes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the bare bones essential message of Paul, if we were to fill in some blanks, might have started out like this. People of Athens, you are destroying yourselves by bowing down to false gods. You're giving yourselves in love to another, to, to many others who will only enslave you, who will never satisfy you. He would have been representing the heart of God in speaking such words. How did God respond to such sin and rebellion and rejection and unfaithfulness on the part of His people? God did the unthinkable. In order to apply justice to sin, as a holy God, He must do that. And in order to preserve His people in love, the Father sent the Son to His cross to take our place for all who trust in Him. Love and justice met at the cross. Mercy and judgment intersected in the person of Christ at Calvary. And you can access that freedom from shame and guilt and the consequences of sin, which ultimately lead to death, as you trust in this resurrected Savior. Somehow, some way, Paul got there with the Athenians because some believed trusted Christ. Remember the altar to an unknown God? He starts with that. 
Paul comes full circle at the end of, of what we're told, he said. In verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such unknownness. It's translated ignorance, which is absolutely accurate. But it's the same word, altar to an unknown God. Paul here says, In the past, God overlooked unknownness. He overlooked the excuse that, I don't know. I, how do I know? But now... He insists that people change, turn, repent. Um, why? Because his son has come. And his disciples are spreading this best of news to the waiting world. There's no neutral position on God. One can say, I don't know. But if you're content to remain in agnosticism... At some level, you're expressing a preference for self-sufficiency rather than God-dependency. You're saying, what I most need is me, and if I never get God, it's okay. I have me. I'm, f I'm fine by myself. I'm enough to figure out life and whatever lies behind it. And when Paul mentions in verse 31 that judgment is coming, he does end his message with a focus on Jesus, the one who will bring about justice. There's this 5th century B.C. Greek play by Aeschylus in which the god Apollo inaugurates the Areopagus where Paul is speaking. And Apollo says, When a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. So Paul's climactic mention of resurrection is deliberately provocative. In that very same place that Apollo, a god, said there is no resurrection, Paul says it's all about resurrection. There's nothing without it. But resurrection doesn't just qualify Jesus to be the judge. Resurrection isn't just like, well, he rose and therefore who else would we pick, you know? He, he's the one, I guess. Resurrection means that Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first example. He is the evidence that God is at work setting right everything that has gone wrong. Why, why is everything wrong? Because of sin. What does sin lead to? Death. Death is the epitome of things that are not the way they're supposed to be. You and I feel that when we suffer loss in our, in our families, in our friendship circles. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what got Jesus angry at Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Judgment isn't just punishing the bad people. Judgment also involves vindicating God's people. It, it's not just dealing with um, the darkness. It is... Um, applying the light properly to God's creation, setting right everything that has gone wrong. Resurrection says to the world, look at what God is doing. He started it in Jesus. And when that same Jesus returns, he will apply this judgment, resurrection power to his creation. If you've rejected him, you are judged. If you've accepted him by faith, everything will be made right. Everything wrong will be renewed and healed. And so God, who has the right to judge all of humanity for our indifference, I don't know, or our outright rejection of who he is, chose in love to judge his son 
in the place of all who believe, and then to raise him from the dead as proof of what he's up to in the world. Is he not infinitely more worthy of our praise and worship than mere idols? Let's pray toward that end. Lord, you are the living God. You take death and you do not allow it to have its final word. Jesus walked out of that tomb and resurrection changes everything. Cause us to place all of our hope in this risen Savior, Jesus. Call us to an everlasting preoccupation with you, O oh God, for what else could possibly compete with our attention than these most glorious of things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.